My text this morning I've titled in the sermon, A Severe Mercy, A Severe Mercy. What is a severe mercy? Actually, this title is not original to me. It's actually came in a letter written nearly 50 to 60 years ago to a man who was bereaved of his beloved wife. Their names were Sheldon and Jean. They had met in college. They became great friends. And they would in time marry. And as they looked to their marriage, they enjoyed the love that they experienced between themselves. They determined that they would not let anything create a wedge between the love that they experienced. In fact, we might look at it as being extreme. They had determined that the potential for children to create a wedge within their own relationship would be too great to allow. They actually determined to have a voluntary sterility and not have children because they wanted to be able to enjoy life together completely, continuously. They shared everything together. They, they uh, discovered a lot of life together. They worked in similar types of fields. They, they had so much that they could discuss that was in common. But in time, Jean discovered the writings of C.S. Lewis and started to become intrigued by Christianity. And so she began to share that discovery with her husband. And they started reading books together written by Lewis and trading them back and forth and reading them. And Jean was the first to embrace Christ. Sheldon gradually embraced Christ. And in those early days of conversion, there was a lot of joy that was experienced between them. There was a lot of discovery. But gradually some things developed in their relationship, one of which was a cancer diagnosis. Jean, it was discovered, had cancer that was going to become terminal. And Sheldon became very disillusioned. He began to, to kind of question God's kindness to allow this to happen to them when they had so much in common with each other. But Jean continued to go to church and Sheldon would hold back. And he was um, kind of waning in his, his faith. He nearly gave up on God actually when Jean passed away. And it was in a letter written by Lewis to, to Sheldon. In counsel, Sheldon uh, received these words from Lewis. That one flesh, that is marriage, must not live to itself any more than a single individual. It was not made any more for he to be its own end, that is the marriage to be its own end. Marriage was made for God. You see, Sheldon and Jean had created within their marriage something that was in competition to God who is over all. And Lewis went on and wrote this. In the loss of Jean, Sheldon, you have been treated with a severe mercy. You've been brought to see that you were jealous of God's affections for Jean. So from us, you have been led back to us and God. And now it remains for you to go on to God and us. 
He was jealous of God. Jean, his wife, had pursued God even as death was coming, but Sheldon held back. He was anxious and full of jealousy because Sheldon valued his marriage above God. In fact, he needed God to step in and take Jean out of his life so they may have a proper focus and love for God above all things. In fact, Sheldon took the words of Lewis this way. He said, The loss of Jean was a mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. In the end, Sheldon became closer to God through the experience. Severity is not a concept that most of us will find appealing. In fact, we live in a world that celebrates romantic love as the great goods and the great end by which we pursue this life. Our American culture actually is not welcome to a severe mercy because your personal happiness as an American is the greatest good. And whatever does not make you happy is actually evil and is to be avoided. That is the reason why a text like what we're going to look at this morning may be difficult for some of us to listen to at first, but we need to realize that whatever God brings to us, whether severe or joyful, is ultimately for our own good and for our well-being, to reconcile our hearts to be closer to him. And for God's children, the severe trials of life are mercifully designed to draw our hearts closer to him. We are often so blinded by sin. We are often um, unaware of just how deceptive sin can be in our own hearts and lives. And we need pressure at times to open our eyes to humble us to see how desperately we need God. And in this text, I haven't even read it yet. You don't even, maybe even can't visualize where we're going yet. But we're going to be looking at Joseph in Egypt applying pressure to his brothers. Pressure that some of us might think, that's not really kind. That's not loving. But Joseph becomes the instrument in the hands of God to bring about reconciliation. But reconciliation cannot come with the brothers until they humbly admit that they have done wrong. And that, in the severity, becomes a mercy to them. And so as we look at this text, I'm going to be reading um, various paragraphs. And as we hear the story unfold, be noticing how often the eyesight, the, the, the sense of sight is mentioned and the irony of people who can see, but they don't really see. You have brothers who stand before Fer the, the, the vice regent under Pharaoh, and they don't even know that it's their own brother. They can't see, but later they will see themselves for who they really are. And in the process of this discovery, what happens is the grace of God in the pressure releases them to be more humble and they are prepared to engage God for who he is. 
So that's how we're thinking about this text, that the trials of life are designed to create a greater humility in God's children. This is the big idea here in the text. This text has four locations. We start in Canaan, and then we find ourselves in Egypt, and then we find ourselves on a caravan back towards Canaan, and then finally we're in Canaan again. So it's circular movement. But as we look in this text, I want us to see how God uses the pressure to create a humility that will prepare them for reconciliation. So in verses 1 through 5, we're in Canaan, and God is the one who orchestrates trials. God is the one who orchestrates trials. Let's read verses 1 through 5. As I do, just follow along. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. This leg of the story of Jacob, it's almost like we're returning to Jacob now in the book of Genesis. And there is a worldwide famine now that is putting pressure on his family. This worldwide uh, famine is the drama, the background, excuse me, for the drama that's going to unfold here. And God is the one who is the prime mover here. He orchestrated a worldwide famine to bring the family back together again. Um, Jacob, in the storyline, sends his brothers to Egypt, minus one. He's protective of Benjamin. He's seen what has happened when one of his boys has been with the other brothers. He's nervous. He's scared. But this is not the first time that God's people have gone down to Egypt. Jacob's grandfather, if you recall, Abraham, had at one time gone down to Egypt. It was during a time of famine that he, in uh, contradiction to God's instructions, actually in his life, had gone down to Egypt. He moved the whole family outside of Canaan, and it turned out to be a disaster for him. Later, when Abraham came back into the land of Canaan, he had a dream about his, his offspring going to be as the stars of heaven for multitude. And in that dream, God had told Abraham that one day his children, descendants, would go down to Egypt and be there for about 400 years. There for 400 years and servants to the people in Egypt. It was not an exciting revelation, but nonetheless, that was an insight into what even is happening right now. This worldwide famine is being orchestrated by God to move the family and to fulfill prophecy and to bring them down into Egypt. Have you ever heard people say there is a reason for everything? Maybe you've heard that said before. Maybe you've even caught it coming out of your mouth, right? 
When people say this, they often are thinking about physical reasons for everything. Maybe they're not thinking in terms of spiritual. Maybe some are, but there is a spiritual reason for everything. And even greater than the physical movement of the family into Egypt, God is higher than our ways. His ways are infinitely higher than our ways. And at any given time, as we see events unfold, there's a million things going on that, that God is doing that we don't even realize. And one of the great movements here in this text is that God is moving for spiritual reasons to reconcile a family that had been estranged. Um, on the one hand, God is moving them out of Canaan to spare them from the, the debauchery that's going to become the characteristic of the Canaanites. More importantly, he's going to be bringing a family together that had been estranged. That trial is going to bring about the reconciliation. God is the mover. God is the one who orchestrates trials. And it, so we ought to ask ourselves when we're experiencing pressure, might it be that God wants me to know about myself? What might I need to understand about my lack of holiness? How, how can I become closer to God in the trial that God has allowed to happen in my life? The second phase of this journey actually is now in Egypt, and we're looking at verses 6 through 25 now. Joseph, as I said, is the instrument in God's hands. And even as Joseph in this moment is going to apply extreme pressure upon his own family, we're going to see that Joseph has working through emotions that he's bottled up for a long period of time. And even as he's applying pressure, he's emotionally hurting through the process. There is not a devoid absence of emotion in Joseph. But in verses 6 to 17, there's two pieces that I want us to think about, two progressions in Egypt. And the first is that Joseph begins to apply pressure and it reveals a partial truth. It reveals a partial truth. Verses 6 through 17. Let's read those. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had been dreamed, that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is to see the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we are your servants, our twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined. 
that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. There is a hint in this text about what's going to unfold here. Um, notice, notice that they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Bowing before a great person was seen to be a sign of humility and recognition of elevated state of the superior. It was a sign of humility. And in this act, there is an irony. It's revealing Joseph's recognition of who the brothers are. They don't see who he is. And he had dreamed a dream of the stalks of grain falling down to his. But when Joseph had told his brothers that one day they would bow before him, they had heard the revelation of God and they hardened their hearts. In pride, they hardened their hearts. And they stopped their ears and then they sold their brother into slavery. They're acting out humility, but what got Joseph to Egypt was their pride. Where do they stand today? Are they still proud? Or is their hearts filled with humility that their outward signs represent? And in this text, Joseph is doing inquiry to see whether or not the internal is matching the external. How can he trust? This is some of why he did not reveal himself quickly to, to his brothers. Now, he accuses them of being spies. Interesting. But this would not have been a, a random accusation, actually. This is probably pretty reasonable because Egypt didn't have natural borders in terms of a, a mountain range. They didn't have necessarily a, a wide river. So they would have outposts along the edge between Egypt and Canaan. And they would have sentries stationed and inspection uh, bands that would come and look at people who were coming down to trade in Egypt. And they would be trying to inquire to see whether or not there was, you've got 12 men coming together on expedition. It looks a little fishy. It could very well be the leading edge of an invading army. And so the accusation that they are spies is not unreasonable at all. And so Joseph pushes back upon them, and, and he's like a skilled interrogator. He, 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 he throws out the no real quick and settle, unsettles them. Uh, I, you can almost visualize this unfolding um, in, in, in video mode almost. And uh, he says, no, you're, you're, you're here to see the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And he's putting the, he's putting the gears to them. He sees who they are, but they don't see who he is. And in this pressure, there is a partial truth that, that becomes revealed, and they admit that there is a brother who is no more. It's not a complete confession. It is a partial confession. And Joseph then proposed locking them all up and sending one back for the littlest one. And he lets them stew over it. He puts the pressure even more upon them and throws them into group discussion. 
They're all evaluating what has just happened. And so in verses 18 to 25, we see an increased pressure reveals the whole truth. Reveals the whole truth. Verse 18, we read, And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and did not listen. And this is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben said to them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept. And he turned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from among them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. The pressure of the running clock, the group pressure to say, who's going to fess up? What, how are we going to get out of this? The distress must have been incredibly intense. They really had nothing else to give. They had really nothing else to say. I mean, it wouldn't even make sense, theoretically, for them to admit what they had done to their brother Joseph, to the man who was persecuting them. And so something happens. Something happens in the moment of reflection. Joseph decides to give an act of mercy in the midst of his severity. He poses a more merciful approach and he allows nine to go back and to bring all the food back for their families. One is going to remain. But in that proposal that one would remain, something caught them. This one that was remaining in Egypt was going to be contained like a slave. Did they not, in that moment, it seems so, that they recalled their brother being sold into slavery into Egypt? Everything broke. The dam broke. And in verse 21, they admit the whole truth. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, verse 21 says. In that we saw the distress of his soul. He begged us and we did not listen. That's why the distress has come upon us. What do you think? Is this karma? Hinduism and Buddhism teach that what happens to a person is caused by their actions. Maybe you're familiar with that. See, karma is a philosophical description detached though from a personal deity who brings about justice. It's a suppression of the truth about who God is. It is a natural understanding but this is really not karma. This is the just action of a holy God. There's more that's going on here in this recognition. The brothers are breaking under pressure, but they're openly communicating the whole truth. 
There is pressure bringing upon them a humility, and in the humility and open of confession, there is the potential for healing. There's more going on that I think that you can see in this, in their admission of the, the um, cold blindness to the suffering of their little brother, what they're admitting and showing us is that when we are filled with pride, we cannot see the oppression that is occurring to other people. And pride makes ministry impossible. Ministry to people who are suffering will not occur if we think that we are detached from any sense of suffering at all. And that brothers in a place of power, obviously we're not ministering to the needs of, his, of their little brother. But I think there's a lesson for us here that as a church, we have to have a gospel humility that recognizes that, that we are needy sinners too. We have to recognize with a humility that comes and brings us to the cross that there are others who are suffering and need the cross. And that's a vantage point of humility and not pride. There's more going on here. This, is, this, this, this section is like the pinnacle of everything that's going on here. Reuben begins to speak truth to his brothers. I know it's a little bit of I told you so, Okay. He says, you didn't listen to me. Why didn't you listen to me? It's not like they were completely without excuse in the time in which they carried out the actions against Joseph. They had the word of God of truth to them. Don't do this great wickedness against the boy. But what did they do? They hardened their hearts. They loved darkness rather than light. In a greater way, this is exactly what happened when they nailed Christ to the cross. There was so much witness as to who this person was and an agony and the suffering of his soul. They hardened their hearts. And those who nailed Christ to the cross were without excuse. Sin and pride brings blindness. In verse 24, Joseph is hearing the truth, the whole truth come out. And he breaks down. He's, he's, he's weeping. He can't contain this. He's dealt harshly with his brothers. And in the confession of guilt, there is the potential now for reconciliation to occur. In Proverbs, I'm reminded of Proverbs 28, verse 13, which says, um, whoever confesses, is acknowledging their guilt before the Lord and renounces their sin, gains mercy. This is the essence. This is the essence of where all of this is moving. This is the higher ways, the ways that are greater than our ways. God is greatly concerned. And so Joseph, now reflecting on all this, binds Simeon before their eyes. Curiously, Joseph does something very interesting. He puts money back into their sacks with provision. And that's a confusing gift at first. But it is a merciful act of Joseph to do this. I believe that in Joseph doing this, he's preparing his brothers to believe that he is willing to receive them 
when they confess openly their transgression against him. He's putting good before them so they will believe that he is truly a good person to receive them and willing and humble. But there's more going on here. And so we go to the caravan, verse 26 through 28. We read on in the storyline. It says, And then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at, their, at this their hearts failed them. And they turned and they trembled to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And here in the caravan, God is creating a sense of helplessness in their hearts. They're discovering in horror that their money, you know how this bad this is going to look. It looks like they actually came in, waltzed into Egypt, loaded up all the grain, and also stole the money and brought it all back with them. Like how are they possibly even going to be able to go back into and stand before the face of Joseph? And now they've got the extreme pressure of Simeon's there as hostage. What are we going to do? I don't know if you've ever experienced that feeling of terror that sweeps over you when you see the flashing lights behind you. Right? For about four or five minutes, there's this sensation of helplessness, right? And he comes over to the car, or she comes over to the car, and you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am. And you're like, your tail's between your legs, and you drive off, and you drive like a sweet little grandma, right? You become sheepish, docile. You might call it humble. And helpless is where we ought to be. Humility does not grow when we think we are in control of our lives. We should always be asking, what is this that God has done? What has he done to me? And in the severity that you may experience in the trials of your life, you need to know the heart of God. It's the heart like Joseph who is intending to give you good things, even though you don't understand them at the moment. But you need to know your helplessness. That creates the attitude of humility. So in Canaan, they keep going, verses 29 to 38. We see that God in this is creating this humility. He desires a real humility from us and from his brothers, Joseph's brothers. Let's read on verse 29 to 38. And then they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is, the day, is this day with her father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, and then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brothers to you, and you shall trade in the land. 
And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack, and they and their father saw their bundles of money, and they were afraid. And Jacob said, their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children, Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. In the recounting of this event that transpired down in Egypt, what's happening now is that they're using a phrase... We are honest men. They use that phrase three times. But have they been fully honest? No. No, they haven't. But they're on their way. They're going to get there. They have unknowingly admitted to Joseph in his presence that they had sinned. You might say they admitted their sin before God. But they haven't really, in the front of Joseph's face, admitted that they have sinned. They're not told their father what they have done. And so, there's a lot of frustration that's being expressed here. uh, Reuben, hearing his father's fears and everything, is not ready to admit everything yet, and to be honest, when we don't admit and become transparent about our sin, we ought to realize that we will experience frustration in all of our circumstances. In fact, Reuben is not even making sense. How would that help his father to see that his own grandsons are put to death? That's not even going to comfort his father. This is a sound of desperation that's going on. There's something else that's happening here. Reuben is talking, but there's someone else who's not talking, and that's Judah. Judah's not talking. A few, I can't remember when we spoke on uh, Genesis 37, but when I spoke from Genesis 37, that was the event of Judah and Tamar, which often we pass over because it's really awkward. But there's something very significant happening in the story of Judah and Tamar. Judah married a Canaanite against his parents' wishes and had three boys. He gave to his oldest boy another Canaanite lady named Tamar, and they were married, but the oldest boy died. And then he gave the second boy to Tamar to do the leveret marriage and raise up seed and the second-born boy neglected his duty as he ought to have done, and God took him too. He only has one boy left. And back in that moment, he was fearful of giving that third boy to Tamar at a superstition that maybe he would lose that youngest boy too. That event, you know, when you're reading the Scriptures and you're like coming up to chapter 37 and there's a big detour to chapter 42 we might lose perspective of when this occurred. This actually happened about two years before, the, before he went down to Egypt and saw his brother Joseph, not knowing that it was his brother Joseph. 
What am I getting at? Judah's silent, but he's thinking. Now I understand what my father went through. Now I can identify with my father. There's a humbling and honesty that's starting to develop in his heart as well. But one day, in the not distant future, actually in the next chapter, he's going to open his mouth and take leadership and try to protect Simeon and not destroy him. He's going to identify with the sufferings of his father. There's going to be full transparency of his heart that's going to be outlaid. And all this is going on because God wants a true humility, a true transparency. As I meditated on this text, I recognized that one of the joys of studying church history is that I have the opportunity to observe the trials of other people and observe how they have been faithful. As you might know, or maybe you don't know, I'm studying the life of Jonathan Edwards, Jr., who was a pastor during the Revolutionary time period. He had a a very, very unpleasant pastorate. He pastored a church in New Haven, Connecticut for 26 years. And as I read some of the historical documents, I see it's almost like the 21st century in a lot of churches around America in which he's writing about some very unpleasant, difficult experiences in his ministry. One of the, one of the things that Edwards Jr. is accused of through 200 years of history is being a spiritless preacher. And you might look at that photo and be like, yeah, I, I get that. Come on, everyone posed that way in front of the camera back then, right? What camera? I know, sorry. But the truth is that that when a mistruth is stated frequently, it becomes the truth. And I've had the joy of reading some of his unpublished sermons and and seeing that that, that, that's not the way he, he was. In fact, Edwards Jr. suffered much throughout his life, even the loss of his spouse to a tragic carriage accident and loss of members in his congregation over 26 years, but at the end of his ministry, he transitioned to a very small rural church, and a dean from the University of Yale came to be a part of the installation service. And he said this before the congregation. He said, you, sir, are a truly humble man. And it was a beautiful thing to read and to know that In that small little town, the Holy Spirit moved with a humble man. And the beginnings of the Second Great Awakening occurred, and that congregation nearly tripled in size. The reality is, is that God uses humble people. And God's ways are greater than our ways, and his great desire is for us to be humble Because it's the very heart of God. It's the heart of Christ. Pride blinds us to how things really are. And so God will allow pressure to come into our lives so that we might open our eyes. And it may be a severe mercy. 
many of us take comfort in the verse from Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Has God brought you through trials recently? Severe trials? Could it be that God is trying to get your attention so that you might be reconciled to God and your fellow man? We're going to close the service now by singing holy, holy, holy. And I want us to think as we, as we sing this song, remember that the holiness of God is designed not to fill your heart with guilt, but to fill your heart with humility, to realize that you're utterly helpless before him. The holiness of God is designed to tell, tell you that you need the Lord. You need Christ to be your Savior. You can't live your life on your own merit. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so maybe counterintuitively, singing about the holiness of God to conclude our service is really the right way to be thinking about the holiness of God. How do we stand and how can we be reconciled to God? It comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness at the cross for you. That's glorious and that's hopeful. Let's close by singing that song. I'm going to